It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. Well, the Christmas spirit is still with us. The season doesn't really officially end until January 5th, which is Twelfth Night, which brings to mind that well-known song, Twelve Days of Christmas. And have you ever wondered why those gifts were ever considered true love's offering? And what about Santa Claus? How did he become a part of the story about the birth of Jesus? For that matter, the Christmas tree, the poinsettia, the holly, Rudolph, candy canes, and all sorts of Christmas holiday traditions. Well, Dr. William Federer is an historian with an encyclopedic mind and has the answers to all those questions and more that are part of his book, There Really is a Santa Claus, History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions. And he joins me now. Welcome, Bill. Hey, great to be with you, Lauren. It's really great to have you with um, with me. I mean, I always love it, uh, talking with you because you provide so much information. So why don't we just start out with the 12 days of Christmas? I mean, okay, I know the, the par- partridge in a pear tree, two turtle doves, three French hens, four calling birds, four calling birds, five golden rings, six geese a laying, seven swans of swimming, eight uh, maids of milking, nine ladies dancing, 10 lords a leaping, 11 pipers piping, and 10 drummers drumming. I did it. <laughs> uh, well, uh, it has quite an interesting history. Um, for the Western Europeans, Christmas, December 25th, is the most important day of the year. Mm-hmm. And then Eastern Europeans, uh, the Epiphany, when the three wise men visited, that's the holiest day of the season. They couldn't decide which day was holier, so at the Council of Tours in 567 AD, they decided to make all 12 days between December 25th and January 6th, the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, they called them holy days, and over the years, holy day got pronounced holiday. Hmm. And so, uh, but actually, the Christmas has its own uh, interesting history. The, the Jews did not celebrate birthdays, very similar to people in the East. Uh, we visited in Turkey years ago, and my wife asked the lady at the house when her birthday was. She goes in the back room, digs out some papers, and comes out and says, "Here, this is my." My son worked in Korea for several years. Everybody in the country turns a year older on January 1st. They don't keep track of them. <laughs> and so so the big date of the first couple of centuries was the date of Passover. And the Jews had a lunar calendar. And so the Christians would ask the Jews, hey, when Passover this year? It wasn't until a lot of Greeks start converting and the Greeks did celebrate their birthdays. And so we come around the third century is when the focus is. And there's a piece of the puzzle that was missing until the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so I'll walk through the traditional date is that uh, in the book of Luke, it says that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was in the temple and he was offering incense. The angel appears to him, says, you're going to have a son named John. And he didn't believe it. He struck dumb. And then, of course, his wife, Elizabeth, conceives. Well, there's a little line that says Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was of the priestly division of Abijah. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Well, it was King David that divided the Levite priests into 24 divisions. And, um, but nobody knew what they were because they're not actually listed in the Bible. And so 
when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, among the papers was the sacerdotal rota system. It was the tw- 24 tribes and their orders of the service. Abijah's number eight. But we still don't know uh, when they begin. And so Josephus, in his History of the Jews, tells about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and he lists the tribe that was on duty, the Levites division, and it was Jehoiarib. Well, that's number one. Mm. And we know that the Roman solar calendar has listed that the temple was destroyed in the first week of August of 70 AD. And so in the eighth week, Abijah, Eight weeks after the first week of August is the last week of September. And so September 23rd is the Eastern Orthodox uh, holiday celebrating the conception of John the Baptist Ah. and the forerunner of Christ. And so six months after that is when the angel appears to Mary. She conceives of the Holy Spirit. And the angel says, your cousin Elizabeth is in her six months. So six months after the end of September is the end of August. So August, uh, excuse me, the end of March. (laughs) I get my dates here. So end of September, John the Baptist is conceived. Six months later is March. And so March 25th is the traditional date for the Annunciation when the angel appears to Mary and tells her that she's going to conceive of the Holy Spirit. And so nine months after March 25th is December 25th. So that's the traditional dating of Christmas. What? Now, this is very interesting because there are many scholars who believe it was in he was born in September because of the lunar calendar and because of the same things you were talking about. But I'd never heard the part about Josephus, the historian Josephus talking about and the destruction of the temple. That's a key element. Yeah, so it's sort of piecing these puzzles together. Most of the commentaries that say, well, it could have been at different times of the year, they were written before 1947. So they didn't have that piece of the puzzle. And uh, so it's it's pretty exciting. Um, now, the other thing I bring out as far as Nicholas goes is the first three centuries, there were 10 major persecutions. Christians are thrown to the lions. And Diocletian's the Roman emperor. Um, he loses some battles with Persia. He asks his generals why. They said that you've neglected having the army worship the Roman gods. So Diocletian says, okay, army, get back to worshiping the Roman gods. Well, there's a lot of Christians in the army because the previous emperor, uh, Galenius had been lax, mm-hmm. and they couldn't return to worshiping the Roman gods, so they're forced out. So once the Christians were purged out of the military, Diocletian decided to use the military to force the entire Roman Empire to return to worshiping the Roman gods. Mm-hmm. And he goes province by province, arresting pastors, tearing down churches, confiscating scriptures, boiling and cutting out their tongues. Terrible. goes on for 10 years. And this is the time period that St. Nicholas is born. And uh, he lives in Asia Minor, and so it's still it's illegal to be a Christian, but his parents were el- wealthy and elderly and died when a plague swept through their town of Patara. And here's young man Nicholas inherits the money, and a movement swept through Christianity called Pietism that said being a Christian is more than just doctrine. You have to have a personal experience with Jesus, and when you do, you'll withdraw from all kinds of worldly things. And so the Pietists would become Christian, give away all their money, and spend the rest of their life in a cave as a hermit, or join a monastery, and even take vows of silence, you'll never even hear from them again. Wow. <laughs> and so so Nicholas decides he's going to do this. And so he wants to give away his money, but he wants to do it at night, and, and so that nobody sees him, because he wants the credit to go to God and not to him. And so he's in a little town called Patara, Asia Minor, 
and he'd throw money in the window at night. Sometimes it would land in a shoe or a stocking that's drying by the fireplace. Well, one story that became popular is a merchant and the town had gone bankrupt. Back then, the creditors would not only take your house and lands, they'd take your children, sort of sex trafficking. Kind of of cruel there. And the uh, merchant had three beautiful daughters. He knew if they were taken, it would be a terrible life of of prostitution. And so uh, he thought if he could hurry up and marry his daughters off, the creditors couldn't take him. Unfortunately, he did not have money for a dowry, which was needed in that area of the world for a legally recognized wedding. Nicholas hears the problem late one night, throws money in the window. The oldest daughter has a dowry. She gets married. Big buzz talk of the town does it for the second daughter. When he throws it in for the third, the dad's waiting up, runs outside, catches him. Nicholas makes the father promise not to tell because he wants the glory to go to God and not to him. And so that's the origin of the tradition of secret gift giving stockings by the fire, midnight visits by St. Nicholas. Uh, And it was on January, excuse me, December 6th of 343 AD is when Nicholas dies. So a lot of early church artwork, you know, Nicholas becomes the most popular Greek Orthodox saint. So he is to the yeah. Greek Orthodox what St. Peter is to Roman Catholics. That's why you have a, a lot of Greeks named Nick and their churches, right? Um, <laughs> actually, so- actually, my married name is Nicholas, uh, but it's spelled N-I-K-O-L-I-S. And I was married in St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Shrine Church, which has relics of the original St. Nicholas, the actual priest. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and um, so he's a big deal. He's like a founding father of the Greek Orthodox oh, absolutely, Church. Yes. And now a little trivia, um, because of those three bags of gold that he threw in the window to rescue that family and their financial need, uh, St. Nicholas became the patron saint of pawnbrokers. And so a pawnbroker's <laughs> shop. So a lot of Christian artwork will have St. Nicholas holding three bags of gold or three golden balls. And then the pawn shops put what? Three gold balls hanging outside of their shops. And anyway, a little bit of a stretch, but that's where that came from. Well, that's um, very interesting. You know, also, and I should I digress a little bit, but also the church at Ground Zero, you know, the um, that was destroyed on 9-11 is also St. Nicholas. And it's actually resurrected, being resurrected as a great gathering place um, for all nations, even though it's still a Greek Orthodox church. It's really fantastic. And it has, the marble was is from the Parthenon um, in in Athens, the same mount. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Oh. Yeah, it's really amazing. That, that, that is fascinating. And he, he sort of weaves together uh, a lot of different uh, pieces of history from different countries. But the, the story picks up with him having given away all his money. He gets on a boat, goes to the Holy Land. He's going to join Mount Zion and take vows of silence, and you'll never see him again. But somehow the Lord tells him not to hide his light under a bushel. So he decides to go back to Myra, a port city in Asia Minor. Uh, and unbeknownst to him, the bishop had died, and the church leaders couldn't decide who the next bishop was going to be. And one of them has a dream that the first person to church the next day would be named Nicholas, and he was to be their bishop. Well, Nicholas's habit, he, was very, uh, he would fast all the time. Matter of fact, he wouldn't eat until after communion at church. Mm-hmm. And so that's when they would break the fast. So they actually named it the break fast or the breakfast, right? Oh, and so, yes. so he walks in, they ask his name, they take him in the back room, and they break the news that he's supposed to be their bishop. Well, he was not too excited because the <laughs> Roman— the Roman emperor Diocletian was arresting bishops and killing them. So it was sort of like, you be the bishop. No, no, no. I insist you first. No, really. You, you be the bishop. Anyway, he is arrested. He's put in jail. He's awaiting death. And then Diocletian 
The Roman emperor is struck with an intestinal disease so painful he abdicates the throne on May 1st, 305 AD. Um, This is sort of poetic humor here, that Roman emperors had been declaring themselves a a god, sprinkling gold dust in their hair and demanding their image be worshipped. So this was sort of like a god resigning. Anyway, the the next emperor is Galerius. He continues the persecution. He dies of the intestinal disease. Must have been something in the water. On, or that gold three, they, were, they were putting in their hair. <laughs> and so he dies 311 AD. So now there's no emperor. And it's a toss-up between four generals. Two are quickly defeated. And now it's Constantine and Maxentius. Constantine is a general in York, England, which Britain had been part of the, the Roman Empire since Julius Caesar, 45 BC. So his soldiers surround him. They say to Constantine, hail Caesar, we're behind you. So he marches toward Rome. And he's outside, there's the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, 312 AD, and supposedly Constantine saw the sign of Christ in the sky, puts it on all of his shields and symbols and wins. What's the sign of Christ? It was the first two Greek letters that stood for Christ, um, called the Cairo. Like we abbreviate mm-hmm. states with two letters. Right. So the first letter, first letter in Greek that makes the cut sound is called Chi. It's written as a big X. The second letter that makes the er sound is called rho, and it's written as a big P. So you'd see this X and P on all these third, fourth century Christian artwork. And then he heard the words in hoc signo vinces, which mean in this sign, you'll be invincible. And so they abbreviate that IHSV. And so you'll often see the X and the P and then underneath IHSV. Over the years, the Cairo, the XP, got shortened just to the Chi, the X. It was called the Christ's Cross. And that's where you get the Xmas. So X hyphen M-A-S is not crossing out Christ. It's the Greek letter that stood for Christ. And that became oh. a written oath where you would swear to tell the truth and you would say, cross my heart. Well, what's, that's the Christ cross. And then it became an oath on a document where you would pledge to keep your word and you would sign at the Christ cross. That's come down to us as sign at the X. And then they would kiss it to show sincerity. And that's where you get the X's and the O's on the bottom of the Valentine. Well, this but, is, um, it's just so cool how everything is really quite interrelated, but it all goes back to Christianity, really. I mean, it's the whole, the whole, whole, whole historical landscape of it. Um, I, yeah. I also, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say 313, Constantine um, uh, issues the Edict of Milan. Now it's okay to be a Christian. Nicholas is let out of jail. And then he is goes back to Myra and he preaches against Diana worship, uh, like the Apostle Paul did, Acts chapter 19. And Diana, uh, they had a big temple at Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 127 huge pillars and temple prostitutes. It was the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean. Nicholas stirs up the people. They tear it down. So he was a fire and brimstone preacher. He preaches against exposure of unwanted infants. And it was more or less their version of abortion, where the mother would bear the child laid at the father's feet. If he picked it up, they kept it. But if he didn't think they could afford it, didn't look healthy, the mother would have to put it outside and expose it to the elements. And and, the, and the, that's how Rome started, right? Two abandoned babies, Romulus and Remus. And then, of course, a, a wolf supposedly came by and nursed them. But the Christians would preach against this with the same enthusiasm and arguments they would preach today on pro-life. Wow. And then you had the Arian heresy, a big deal. First three centuries of Christianity, Christians didn't live long enough to argue over doctrine. They were meeting in catacombs, and they'd get thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. But then, after Constantine legalizes Christianity, a guy named Arius starts this heresy. He says, Jesus is a created being. He's less than God. He writes a catchy song. The Visigoths convert to Arianism. 
and it mm-hmm. splits the church. And since Constantine had made Christianity the de facto religion of the empire, it split in the empire. So Constantine orders and pays for all the bishops to come together for the very first time in history at Nicaea, and they settle it with the Nicaean Creed. And the Greek tradition is that St. Nicholas was there, and he was so upset at Arius for starting the heresy that he slaps him across the face. So jolly old St. Nick had a little temper. You better watch out if he's coming to town. (laughs) Maybe that's where we get that. You know, you better watch out, better watch out. Uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. Hey, Bill, we're going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back. and I want to talk about some more Christmas traditions. Um, We'll be right back. Did you know that every major diaper company either financially or vocally supports abortion? If that appalls you and you're looking to support a baby brand that aligns with your pro-life, pro-family views, then every life is your solution. Every life firmly believes that regardless of where someone is from, what they look like, or whether they were planned or unplanned, every baby is a miracle from God worthy of love, protection, and celebration. Every Life offers high-performing, supremely soft, premium diapers and wipes delivered right to your doorstep. Their diapers are crafted without fragrances, dyes, lotions, latex, parabens, or phthalates. And you can feel good knowing that every purchase with Every Life contributes to changing lives through their support of pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. Every Life is not just changing diapers, they're changing lives. Visit everylife.com to learn more. That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today. And we're back with uh, Bill Federer, historian and in the encyclopedia of everything um, historical, really, basically. Um, I want to talk about um, the, the Santa Claus again. And we were going to, because there's a, there's a progression of how the legend of St. Nicholas kind of entered a lot of the European countries and got transformed as the process went along. Is that right? Yes, yes. Um, and and it, you can begin to see things added on. And some are like some of the miracles that Nicholas is attributed with. And some of them are more believable than others. But one is ships would go from North Africa with grain stop off in Myra on their way to Rome. His people were starving. He talks the sailors into unloading grain, promises God will bless them on their return trip. They said the grain that was left had multiplied. They had more than enough, like the Elijah and the little widow with the meal barrel and that didn't mm-hmm. empty out. And then a, a storm, sailors and fishermen couldn't get back. Nicholas prays, sea becomes calm like Jesus coming to sea. So now he's the patron saint of sailors and that enters the story a little bit later with the Dutch. And then there's a corrupt governor. And he was going to kill some soldiers to cover up his corruption. Nicholas has a dream of what happened, goes down, breaks through the crowd, grabs the sword out of the executioner's hand, and then in front of everybody tells all the corrupt stuff the governor was doing. And the governor realized nobody could know the details other than God, so he begs Nicholas to pray for him. He dies December 6, 343 AD, and Greeks would begin leaving presents for each other, uh, like he, like when he rescued those girls. Justinian is the Christian Roman Roman emperor of the Byzantine Empire. He Mm -hmm. builds a church and dedicates it to St. Nicholas. And then you have um, Russia. Vladimir the Great, he is a pagan. He decides to throw all of the Russian gods in the Dnieper River and embrace monotheism. And so some Jews from an empire called the Khazars come and he doesn't convert. Some Roman Catholics come, he doesn't convert. Uh, The first chronicle of Russia says the Muslim ambassadors came 
and that Vladimir listened intently when they said that paradise was filled full of virgins because he was fond of women. But then when they told him he could no longer drink alcohol, uh, he says, we cannot have this because drink is the joy of the Russes, the Russians. So, so Russia didn't convert to Islam because of, he liked to drink. But then the Greek Orthodox show up and they tell him that, hey, we speak Greek, the language of the New Testament. Our land is where the seven churches in Revelation are. And some of the Russian ambassadors had gone to the Hagia Sophia. It's a 165 feet high church, 102 foot across dome, four acres Amazing. of gold mosaics. Yeah. And so they said it's like walking into heaven. So he converts to Greek Orthodox and makes Nicholas the patron saint of Russia. That's why so many you know, czars are named Nicholas. Wow. But then, that, then it comes to Western Europe with Islam. So in 846 AD, Muslim warriors invaded Rome and trashed the bones of St. Peter and St. Paul. It was after that that Pope Leo built the 39-foot wall around the Vatican. But now we're up to 1087, and the Turks are going through Asia Minor and destroying churches. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation are destroyed. And the Christians don't want their bones or their Nicholas destroyed, so they move them over to Bari, Italy in the year 1087. Oh. And Pope, Pope Urban II builds a church. It's still there. And um, that same Pope Urban II had so many Greeks fleeing that he goes to the Consul of Claremont, 1095 AD, and begs the kings of Europe to send help. They do what's called the First Crusade. And so the same Pope Urban that welcomes the Nicholas Bones to Western Europe calls for the First Crusade. Anyway, there's there's uh, nine crusades over two centuries. Of course, the jihadis have had 14 centuries of crusades. But um, <laughs> then once Nicholas's remains are in Western Europe, the gift giving spreads through Italy. And it's so popular that St. Francis of Assisi, sort of in protest, creates the nativity scene, the crest scene. Saying gift giving is fine, but it's a distraction from the real real reason for the season. The, Jesus, the Son of God, was born in a manger. And then you go to the 1500s, Martin Luther. And he ends the saints' days, including the popular St. Nicholas Day. By this time, there's a dozen saints honored every day. The churches have relics and icons and statues, and he considers this a distraction from Christ. But the Germans like the gift giving that was associated with St. Nicholas on December 6th. So he ends the saints' days, but he moves the gift giving to December twenty fifth, and says oh. all gifts, all gifts come from the Christ child, and the German pronunciation of Christ child is Christkindle, like kindergarten, oh, kinder right. care. Kind means child, and Chris means Christ, and so it was called. He said the gifts come from the Christkindle. Over the years, that got pronounced Chris Kringle. So Chris Kringle's really Chris Kindle, which means Christ child. But my daughter worked in Germany for years and um, they would, you know, December 24, oh, the Chris Kindle's coming. And there's pictures of the Christ child with a bag of toys on his back. And, um, Martin Luther adds another thing, and that's the tree, uh, it candles in the tree. So he's coming home at night, sees the sky twinkling with stars and puts candles in the tree. And he says, this is like the sky above Bethlehem on the night of Christ's birth. And uh, if you want, I can give a quick, quick history of the tree. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I think people, you know, they fought for it. I just put my tree up, by the way. So, yeah. So we have um, fifth century Britain. A guy named Patrick goes and evangelizes the Druid pagans of Ireland. They can't read. They're illiterate. But he uses a three leaf clover to teach the Trinity. Well, now we have the 722 AD, another guy from Britain named Boniface or Winfred. He goes to these Germanic tribes and he uh, chops down Thor's tree in Geismar, Germany. So Ooh. 
The Germans worship Thor. That's where you get the word Thor's day. They worship Woden. That's where you get the word Woden's day or Wednesday. And they're pagan names. And so that's why the Quakers refused to call them, thir- you know, Wednesday and Thursday. They right. would call them fourth day and fifth day, you know. Um, <laughs> but but St. Boniface chops down Thor's tree. And somebody says, well, if uh, you shouldn't do that. And somebody else said, well, if Thor is really a god. He certainly can protect his own tree. And then after it's chopped down, Boniface uses the evergreen tree to teach the Trinity. And he says, look, it's like, you know, you got the bottom, you got the two sides. It always points up toward heaven. It's evergreen, symbolizing eternal life. And um, uh, Henry Van Dyke wrote a, a poem in 1906. And he talks about, you know, that he says, let this be the tree of the Christ child and your homes are built of fur. And so let there be shelter, no deeds of blood. But so even to this day, in one of the towns there in Germany, they have a statue of St. Boniface standing on the stump of a big oak tree with an axe in his hand. And then the other hand, he's holding a church. And so anyway, and then the, the candles in the branches could have come from the Jews who from 165 BC were celebrating Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. Right, and so they right. would put candles up every every winter. And um, and so the, the Alexander the Great, you know, makes all the big empire makes it Greek. And um, anyway, but uh, the Seleucids had trashed the temple and then they cleaned the, the Maccabees, drive them out and they only have enough oil for one day. And then ends up burning eight days. And, um, and so that's the feast of dedication. You know, it's interesting too, because, you know, in the Bible, in the, in the new Testament, uh, when in the gospel of John, actually, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it is at the feast of the dedication that he says it. And, of course, that's the Festival of Lights. That is Hanukkah. And he was making a point that even though the Jews were lighting the candles for, you know, the, bringing light into the world out of darkness, he actually makes the statement, which was pretty bold when you consider it, that he says, I am the light of the world. Um, you know, the, and and that was really almost a direct uh, confrontation with the light of the Hanukkah candle, the menorah. Yeah, yeah. And um, so so it's sort of interesting. But, you know, here's Jesus there at Hanukkah. So there's nothing wrong with Christians celebrating Hanukkah, too. But no, the, the I, other yeah. the other part is uh, Martin, uh, Martin Luther brings the Reformation to Germany. 1534, Henry VIII brings the Reformation to England, uh, but not because he had a spiritual experience. He just wanted another wife. He ended yes. up having six <laughs> wives. But during Henry VIII's time, uh, he gets rid of the saints' days. The Brits like Christmas, but he moves all the gift giving to December 25th. And instead of having the Christ child be the giver of gifts, he brings out uh, uh, an old Roman holiday, Saturnalia. And Saturn was the Roman, you have to remember, Britain was a Roman colony from 45 BC. And Saturn was the god of feasting and plenty and merriment. And at the end of the year, they would have this party time. And and if you remember the Christmas carol with Charles Dickens, there's yeah. this there's the spirit of Christmas present. And he's a big fat guy with, you know, r- robes, uh, you know, wreath in, in his hair, goblet of wine, yeah. grapes, and it's a happy party guy. And you're looking at him asking yourself, who is this guy? He sort of looks like Santa, but he also sort of looks like some Roman god. Well, it was Saturn, but they Christianized him, called him Father Christmas. They couldn't call him St. Nicholas because St. Nicholas was sort of outlawed at this time. And so during Henry VIII's time, Christmas became a party time. Carousing, drinking, wassling, where you'd take a drink of booze and throw the rest of it on a plant so you'd have a nice harvest and chasing women. And sort of like Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras used to be a religious day. 
It was the day before Lent when you would fast 40 days before Easter and celebrate the resurrection. But now it's a it's a lewd party in New Orleans. Well, that's sort of what happened with Christmas under Henry VIII. And so when the Puritans came along, they wanted to purify the church. They were against Christmas. And they were so strict that they forbade Shakespeare from mentioning God in his plays. They called theaters dens of iniquity. And that's when Shakespeare wrote Midsummer Night's Dream with little fairies and Macbeth with, you know, fates and these little witches. Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. Because he wanted to refer to something supernatural, but he couldn't mention God. But then Shakespeare writes Twelfth Night, right? It's the Twelfth Night of Christmas, but he can't. And in Twelfth Night, he has this carnivalesque drunken revelry based on the ancient Roman festival of Saturnalia. And so when the Puritans got in control of England, they forced Globe Theater to close in 1642. And then in 1644, they pulled it down. 1644, Puritans pulled Shakespeare's Globe Theater down. So they were really strict. So it was during this time that the pilgrims came to America. Pilgrims said the Sabbath is the holy day. Other days are all the same. They didn't celebrate Christmas. So the captain of the Mayflower, Christopher Jones, writes in his ship's log, December 25th, 1620, at anchor in Plymouth Harbor, Christmas Day, but not observed by these colonists, they being opposed to all saints' days, etc. And then the Puritans actually had a five-shilling fine for anybody caught celebrating Christmas. But William Bradford has a humorous story. He says, uh, one more incident rather amusing. Uh, A second boatload of pilgrims came over. He says, on Christmas Day, the governor called everyone to work, but they excused themselves, saying it was against their conscience. So they went to work. When he came back at at lunch, he says he saw them playing, uh, pitching the bar and stool ball and such sports in the street. And so the governor took away their games and says it was against his conscience that they should play while others work. And so if they're going to celebrate Christmas, do it quietly in your homes. But then the Dutch, this is the big connection. The Dutch settled New York and they love St. Nicholas. And if if people know the Catholic saying that, oh, St. Peter's at the gates of heaven. Well, the Dutch do a take on the book of Revelation where Jesus will return at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead riding a white horse. And the saints will come back with him riding white horses. And St. Nicholas is a saint after all. So he'll be one of those riding a horse. But since he's so special to the Dutch, they have him coming back once a year for a little mini judgment, a little checkup on the kids, make sure they're on the right track. See who's naughty, see who's nice. So in Holland to this day, every St. Nicholas Day, they have him coming back, riding a white horse, dressed as a bishop. And over the years, saints coming from heaven, New Jerusalem, celestial city, that turns into the North Pole. And then the angels keep the Lamb's Book of Life. That turns into the elves keeping the Book of the Naughty and the Nice. Uh, (laughs) Norway, Finland didn't have horses, so now they got him riding a reindeer. So you can see the little change, uh, a little humor. Um, The St. Nicholas to the Dutch would give presents and he had a little helper with him, Zvarte Piet. And he was a Muslim and he would take the naughty kids, put them in a gunny sack, take them back to Spain and sell them into slavery. You have to remember that um, the, the, when the Muslims occupied uh, Spain, they, they, ens- they enslaved over a million Europeans. There were whole Catholic orders in Europe called the Trinitarians and they would collect alms and donations to ransom people. The head of the order was called the ransomer. So this was a real scare when you, when you tell little Dutch kids that Santa Claus or Santa Claus is coming, they'd start crying. Um, I did a, a call in radio interview one time and the guy says, yeah, I was raised in Holland and all the boys in our neighborhood the night before St. Nicholas visited would go to sleep with a 
pocket knife in their pocket. Whoa. I said, why is that? I said, why is that? He goes, that's to cut ourselves out of the gunny sack in case of RJP took us. <laughs> and, um, but but the, the, the pieces come together. The Dutch had St. Nicholas, the patron saint of sailors, and they had a merchant military navy that went from Indonesia, Jakarta, South Africa, Goa, India, and New Amsterdam. And so on the front of their boat, instead of a Poseidon or a mermaid, they had a St. Nicholas. And so the first Dutch Reformed church in New Amsterdam was the St. Nicholas Dutch Reformed church. And it was right along Battery Park, and it ended up becoming the largest Protestant cathedral in America at the corner of 48th Street and 5th Avenue. Wow. And Petty Roosevelt went there. But then in um, 1948, the uh, or 43, rather, um, the um, 49, uh, the city had become financial district, and fewer people go in there. And then the Sinclair Oil Company went to these church elders and says, can we buy this corner? And they said, yes. And they tore the church down and they took the money and built marble collegiate church. That's where Norman Vincent Peale was the my, pastor. My. And many famous people, even Donald Trump went there. Um, but the uh, there's no more church at that corner. Um, but in New York, you had the, the last pieces of the puzzle, Irving Berlin. He wrote Rip Van Winkle, led to the Sleepy Hollow. And he wrote Dietrich Knickerbocker's History of New York from the beginning of the world to the end of the Dutch dynasty. He's the one that gave us the word Gotham for New York City, Gotham City. Mm -hmm. But Dietrich Knickerbocker was a made-up name, but it was so popular associated with New York. you got a basketball team now named the New York Knicks. Yes. It's Washington Irving. Well, in there, he says that St. Nicholas still comes dropping presents down the chimneys for the kids. Um, but he describes him dressed not as a bishop, but in a typical Dutch outfit of stocking hat, long trunk hose, and a large pipe. And, um, and then in New York, 1823, you have a Hebrew professor named Clement Moore. His family donates the, the land for the Anglican Seminary. There is a park at 10th Avenue and 22nd Street called the Clement Moore Park. Well, he writes a poem for his children, and we all know it. It was a night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. So he's he's still there. Um, the last two pieces, um, Civil War, illustrated for Harper's Weekly Magazine, Thomas Nast, N-A-S-T. He's the one who gave us the Republican elephant and Democrat mule. He's the one that did a illustration of St. Nicholas speaking to the Union troops with a little North Pole sign in the background. And that was actually a political jab at the South to say St. Nicholas is now associated with the North. But the last piece is Coca-Cola. They hired an artist named Haddon Sunblum. You know him because he designed the Quaker Oats Man and yes. Aunt Jemima Syrup. And for 30 years, Haddon Sunblum did a painting of Santa Claus drinking Coke. And because Coca-Cola invented mass marketing, this is the image that spread. This nice grandfather, huggable, rosy cheeks, lovable guy. Um, but when you peel back all the pieces, there really was a guy who lived in the third century. And he loved Jesus, became a Christian. He joined, went into the ministry. He was imprisoned for his Christian faith. He preaches against sexual immorality. Uh, he confronts corrupt governors. He stood up for the doctrine of the Trinity, but we remember him most because he was generous and gave to the poor in their time of need. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Well, Bill Federer, I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. If people want to find out a little bit more and read more of the details, they can get your book, There Really Is a Santa Claus. 
History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions. I want to thank you so much for being on uh, Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Oh, thank you, Lauren. It's always a pleasure. And Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. And do all a good night. Yes, and thank you very much. I'm Lauren Green. Thank you for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Have a blessed day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.